holy us. You have us in your grip. We are engraved in the palms of your hands. That we are ever before you. And we turn to you and we recognize that you must hold on to us as we hold on to you. Be our Right. The question this morning, if God is sovereign, then how much freedom do we really have as human beings? This is the fourth question that we are tackling in this uh, series, where the series is built on questions that we've taken from people in our life, friends of ours, that we're in relationship with who aren't part of the Crossing Church. Uh, questions of skeptics, possibly. Questions of the curious. Uh, that dig deep into uh, who God is and theology and how you, it applies to life. And um, we've walked through questions like how we can trust the Bible, that it is God's Word, it's not just a man-made written book. Uh, questions related to if God is loving, then why does He allow sin and suffering in the world? Last week we looked at uh, why we're so hung up on Jesus. Uh, why do we make such a big deal of Jesus as the only way to salvation and life? What's so special about Him? And uh, then today we're looking at this fourth question and many more to come. Uh, if uh, you find a worship guide around, it has all the questions that we're doing each week. So you know um, who to invite on which Sundays. Uh, not, not so you know which Sundays to come. But also if you do have to miss, then uh, you know which podcast to go listen to uh, to keep up with what we're walking through. Um, this question is one of those questions that show up over and over again in culture and everyday life with everyone. I mean, even non-Christians wonder about the role of fate or the cosmos or some big and personal mysterious force that seems to be more in control of life than we are, that seems to make things happen that we can't explain. Uh, the, the gods are up to something. Um, someone big and powerful beyond ourselves. Just this past week in the normal rhythm of my life, I've either had questions or conversations with people related to, uh, where does God want me to eat lunch today? Where, who does God want me to date or marry? Why even bother to pray? And then more, more tragically, um, a lady uh, who was married in December, did the premarital counseling, uh, lost her husband last Sunday. And so through tears, she's asking me uh, on Monday, why? Why did this happen? Why did God allow this? Um, all these questions and issues attempt to solve this tension between the sovereignty of God and the free will or the choices of mankind. So what is the relationship and how do we live with that tension? Well, I'm not going to fulfill Scott's promise that you're going to be experts when you leave, but let's do pray and ask for God's help. But Father, we are thankful that you have not left us alone. You've not only chosen to reveal yourself to us, but your spirit helps us to see and understand and, and see that you're beautiful and you're good and you're worthy of our life and devotion and worship. So, Father, we come and ask that during this time of teaching that your Spirit would illuminate the Scriptures, would illuminate our minds, and help us to see more truth about who you are, who we are, and what you want us to do in response. And whatever you accomplish in this time together, we pray it will be for our good and your glory. Be glorified, Christ, today. In his name we pray. 
Amen. All right. So what do we do? What do we know? Well, we know from the scriptures, God is sovereign over everything in the universe, which basically means God has a plan and purpose for everything, and nothing happens accidentally or coincidentally outside of His plan and purpose for everything. So, so if you hold to this idea of God's sovereignty, we, we don't believe in luck. We don't believe in happenstance. We don't believe in coincidences. We believe God is actively working in everything to accomplish His ultimate plan and purpose. So several ways you can see this in Scripture. Isaiah 37:26. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass. So God's just not making it up on the fly. He's got a plan in place before the creation of the world that He's carrying out day by day, year by year. Proverbs 16, 9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Ephesians 1, 11 and 12. In him, talking about Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And we could literally walk through dozens and dozens of passages that show God's sovereignty over nature, plants, animals, weather, wind, snow, rain, nations and leaders of nations. And it doesn't matter if they believe in him or not. He's sovereign over who gets elected, who gets appointed as leaders in governments, sovereign over our lives, sovereign over all of our actions, sovereign over all of our successes and failures, sovereign over all the days of our life, how many days of life we will live, how long we'll live, all the gifts and talents that we have, sovereign over our suffering, even sovereign over our sports teams, winning or losing. Sovereign even over that. It's either, and if you're hearing this this morning and, and you're thinking, that's kind of scary, or I don't like that, just hang on. He's sovereign over you being here today. And hearing this proclaimed. As one pastor said, this doctrine is like a, a super hard piece of candy with the most delicious sweet center. So think of like a Tootsie Roll pop. That's not appealing to you, then think of something else you like. And getting through this idea of God's, God's sovereignty is like getting to that hard exterior that's offensive to us, especially in the West, to get to that delicious middle. Because in the West, we vote, we decide, we're in, tr- in charge, we're sovereign, we elect. Now you're telling us the president elects us? Whoa. I'm not, I'm not okay with this. Well, let's, let's stick with it to get to the, the delicious center because it's worth it. Secondly, the second thing we know from Scripture, mankind has been created with a freedom to make choices for which we will be held accountable and we are responsible. Our choices are real and actual choices, and one day when we stand before God to give an account, there'll be no blame shifting. There'll be nobody else standing there with us. It's just us standing before God, giving an account for everything that we've done. That's true of the believer and the unbeliever. We're, our judgment is not a judgment to condemnation or blessing, so it's not a judgment between heaven and hell. That's been decided when we're trusting in Jesus to be our Savior, but our judgment is for reward or no, no reward. Will all we have accomplished be burned up in the fire and we receive no reward, or will we receive reward for what God has accomplished through our lives? So when we talk about the free will of mankind, though, I, I think there does need to be some clarifications. In fact, these are so important, I usually don't use the term free will because I'm really not sure what someone means. Uh, for instance, is man as free as God? No. 
God is truly the most free person in the universe. Not limited by time, not limited in power and ability. God is, in fact, only limited by his character and nature. And so the question, can God do anything? No, God can't do anything. God cannot sin. He cannot tempt to sin. God cannot do evil. God can do anything within the confines of his character and nature, but not anything. Humanity, on the other hand, is much more limited. So while we are free to make actual choices, we are limited by our lifespan. We're limited by our knowledge, our financial ability, our resources, our physical ability. We're limited by our circumstances, our relationships, and on and on we could go. We're not, we're not nearly as free or as sovereign as we like to think we are. The famous poem Invictus by William Henley, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. Not really. Not as much as we like to think we are. In fact, there are 10,000 things that make us who we are that we have no control over. Just take one thing, where you were born, the family you were born in, the location of your family. None of us had any say over that. But think about how huge that was in influencing who you are today. If anyone in this room had been born in a third world country or in the jungles of the Amazon, your life would look drastically different than it looks right now. The fact that we were born in a first world country to parents, or if you were born in a first world country to educated parents with sufficient jobs and disposable income, with uh, readily accessible transportation, who own their own house, who have clean water, access to life-saving medications, refrigeration, indoor plumbing, not living hand-to-mouth, but free to roam the land in your free time. You are in not only the upper echelon of humanity today on earth, you're in the upper echelon of all humanity who's ever lived. Born with a privilege that few people have ever experienced. And all of that based on one choice that you had no control over, the family in which you were born. We are much more shaped by things that we have no say-so than we, than we possibly realize. Robert Peterson, in his book, Election and Free Will, God's Gracious Choice and Our Responsibility, he makes a helpful distinction between true freedom and freedom of choice. He says, true freedom is defined as the ability to love and serve God unhindered by sin. You, you might say how we were originally created and designed to do. Freedom of choice is the ability of human beings to do as they wish. True freedom, love and serve God unhindered by sin. Freedom of choice, human beings do what they want. Only our parents in the garden had both of those options. Before sin entered creation, they were able to love and serve God with true freedom and freedom of choice. But when sin entered creation, fallen humanity apart from Christ doesn't have true freedom because we all are born with a sin nature that has a bent away from God, a bent toward rebellion and sin. And so it's impossible for someone apart from Jesus Christ to experience true freedom, to worship and serve God unhindered by sin. Even those who, of us who are redeemed and have a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus, even our worshiping and serving of God is tainted by sin. We don't always do it right. We may do it right and our motivations be wrong. And so even the right thing we do is tainted by sin because we're doing it for the affection and approval of other people. So we have some restoration of that true freedom in Christ because now we actually have the ability to do things that are righteous and holy in God's eyes. But it's still not perfect. Now in the glorified state, we get all that back. 
everything God originally intended for us to have. True freedom to worship God with everything that's in us and to love Him wholeheartedly and freedom of choice. But right now, it's still tainted. And those who are apart from Christ Jesus, they don't have true freedom. It's impossible for someone apart from Christ Jesus to do anything that is deemed righteous and holy in God's eyes. Even the good they do is tainted by the curse of sin. So what does all this rule out? The sovereignty of God and this freedom of choice that humanity has. Well, this rules out deism. God is the great clockmaker in the sky who created everything, wound it up, and now he walked away to let it just unwind as, as he had originally created it to do. God is far more intimately involved in creation than the deists like to claim. But this also rules out pantheism. God is so intimately involved in creation that he, in fact, is a part of creation. And so everything has God in it, the rocks, the trees, the, the wind, the river. It all contains God, and there's no distinction between creator and creation. Now, that's also wrong. God is sovereign over creation. This also rules out fatalism, blind impersonal forces like the force in Star Wars, all running the universe and whatever will be will be, so there's really nothing we can do to affect or change anything. This also rules out open theism, which says God does not know the future. He's kind of watching it unfold like we are, a more recent development in theology. This rules out determinism, that we're simply programmed like a computer and operating out of our program. A generation ago, this was done in psychology with the teaching of Freud, who claim that we're just a product of hidden sexual urges and sexual tensions that we got from childhood. Now today in science, there are more and more who make this claim based on the intricate genetic code that is contained in all of our cells. And so we're, we're really more like machines if you hold to that view than, than human beings. Theologically, some advocate for determinism or hard determinism that our choices are not real choices, but then how can we be held accountable for the choices that we make if they're not real choices? This also rules out a version of the free will, which man is the ultimate, ultimate determiner of salvation. Man is the ultimate determiner of the end of life. Man is the ultimate determiner in all things. Sometimes, for instance, you hear the foreknowledge of God explained as God looked through the quarters of a time and made his decisions based on what man chose. So God chose us because he saw that we were going to choose him. But then that makes God, it makes man sovereign over God. God's simply responding to our choices. Plus, the whole idea of foreknowledge is, is not about just intellectual knowledge. It's about intimacy and love. The word know in the Bible can speak of knowledge of information, but it also speaks of intimacy. Like between a man and a wife, the, Adam knew his wife Eve. That's physical intimacy. So it's God not just knowing what's to come, but it's God choosing to set his love on his people before time ever began. God initiating that, God causing that to happen. If salvation is ultimately up to me, if I am the final determiner, if I'm the one who casts the deciding vote, then I get some credit for this. I should get some worship for this. I, I should stand before God and God thank me for choosing Him. Instead of me falling before my face before Almighty God, overwhelmed by His grace that He would save me. And so we're left with this seeming tension in our life. J.I. Packer, in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, he calls this tension an antimony. He defines that as an appearance of a contradiction when it's really two truths that exist side by side, and in the mind of God, they don't contradict, 
but in the mind of man, they appear to contradict because we can't understand it. It's kind of like uh, light. Is light a wave or is light a particle? Does light move as energy through matter, like a wave, or is light made up of particles that behave like particles? Well, science would tell you light is both. You can't say light is just one or the other. The same thing with this. God is sovereign, and humans make real choices for which we are responsible. What we have to do is leave them in the appropriate tension when what we want to do, because in the deepest part of our sinful souls, we want to be God. We want to resolve that tension. We want to understand. There's a mystery here. There are secret and hidden aspects to how God works that we can't understand and resolve the tension, and we don't get insight into how He does it. And even if we did, we wouldn't get it. We just don't, we're, you know, we're ants trying to understand how to build a house. We don't, there's no comprehension for it. We're not wired with that ability. You see this tension throughout the scriptures, which, by the way, just assumes God's sovereignty. Like, you never see the Bible defending God's sovereignty. It, it just, you cannot read the Bible without seeing it show up time and time and time again. Ephesians 1, a passage we read earlier, if you continue in that passage, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. So there's uh, an emphasis there on someone who heard the word of truth and believed in him, along with God who's sovereignly working all things according to the counsel of his will. Believed in him, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So God is sovereign, yet we still are responsible to believe in him. Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Lawless men will stand before God one day and give an account for why they killed an innocent man, Jesus. Because they chose to do it. Pilate tried to get out of it, but ultimately Pilate only cared about the approval of the people and keeping the peace so he could keep his job. So Pilate is also guilty of killing an innocent man. But all of that was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God ordained that it had to happen for the salvation of mankind. A few chapters later, Acts 4, 27-28, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God predestining, predestining ordaining, uh, uh, making a plan for everything that needed to happen, that evil man then carried out, killing an innocent man. Which had to happen. It had to happen. Acts 13, 48. Paul is preaching in Antioch. And when the Gentiles heard the gospel that he had proclaimed in the, in, the, in the preceding part of the chapter, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. There is no understanding of salvation, this work of God, apart from God's sovereignty over it. Otherwise, it just turns into a sales pitch. You're trying to convince people to buy your product or something that just crushes us because we can't make it happen. Or if we do make it appear to happen, it's fake. It's not real. 
We're completely dependent upon God. So to be a follower of Jesus, does a person need to realize their sinfulness, their need of a Savior, hear about Jesus and what He's done? That He lived the perfect life that we fail at every day. That He, at the end of His life, willingly, lovingly gave Himself up for us so that through faith in Him, we could come alive in Christ and believe in Him. Does a person need to see their sinfulness, turn from their sins, and trust in Jesus for salvation, trust in Jesus for life now and life eternal, embrace Jesus as King, Savior, and the greatest treasure of their life? Yes. You cannot become a Christian without repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus. You have to do that. Does any of that happen apart from God's initiating and empowering saving work? He loved us before we ever loved Him. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. He had to call us to life, resurrect us spiritually, make us alive in Christ, Ephesians 2 tells us. Does anyone come to the Father, John 6, without being drawn, not driven like cattle, but drawn to the Son? While it is true to be a Christian, someone has to hear the gospel, repent, and believe in Jesus, none of that happens apart from God's sovereign, electing, predestining work so that in the end there is no aspect of our salvation for which we take credit and we receive worship. It's all Him. But we have to choose Him. The church's job isn't to try and figure out who's chosen who's not chosen. The church's job is to proclaim the gospel. Your job isn't to figure out if you're chosen or not chosen. Your job, our job, is to respond to the gospel in repentance and faith in Jesus. Only God knows the mystery of His will, who is part of the elect and who isn't. None of us know. None of us will ever know until we get into the eternal state and we look around. Who's here? Who's not here? Our responsibility is to proclaim the gospel, and our responsibility is to respond to the gospel in repentance and faith. And that's what the Bible proclaims to us. God's sovereign plan works through our choices, not simply because of our choices or despite our choices. God has this ability, because he's God and we're not, to work through our choices to accomplish his purposes. When we choose right and when we choose wrong. When we choose him, when we don't choose him. Again, Proverbs 16, 9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Our plans come from our heart, heart being the essence of who we are. Our words, our actions, our deeds all reveal what our heart is. So our heart makes plans. But who establishes our steps about what actually happens? God. How is that possible? Again, this is not an either-or truth that we love in the West. This is a both-and reality. Mysterious to our limited minds, but it makes perfect sense in the mind of God. Charles Spurgeon, someone who adhered to these doctrines and believed in things like the Bible proclaims, like predestination, the foreknowledge of God, and God's choosing, God's electing, was visiting a man in his church who was sick, and he came up to him and, you know, how are you doing? And he's like, I'm not sure. He's like, well, what do you mean by that? Well, I don't know if I'm predestined to live are predestined to die, so I don't know if I should take my medicine or not. And Spurgeon says, I can answer that for you really easily. If you take your medicine, you're predestined to live. If you don't, according to the doctors, you're predestined to die. Make a choice. 
Our choices matter, church. The error to avoid in walking this out is everything is fixed and our choices don't matter. In that case, you're going to be very passive. The other error is our choices are the ultimate determining factor. In that case, you're going to be paralyzed by fear because you're going to mess it up. You're going to be Marty McFly in Back to the Future. You've got to get everything right or you're going to mess up all of humanity, the butterfly effect. Let's walk this tension out in practical ways that don't lead to passivity, that don't lead to paralysis, but lead to prayerful hope. Prayerful hope. For instance, there's so many ways to think through this. It's, it's, this has been the, probably the most debated topic in the church for, for 20 centuries and is one of the most applicable, practical ways to apply the Bible to life comes up in conversations all the time. So this idea of God's sovereignty and our responsibility is great opportunities to have gospel conversations with people, to help people to see how this all really works in life. For instance, in suffering. Understand this tension allows us to look back on our suffering redemptively. Not just as victims who have suffered, but redemptively. Genesis 50:20. As for you... You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about what many, that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now, Joseph, at the end of Genesis, speaking to his brothers, who were always jealous of him because he was favored by his father, Jacob. So they end up selling him into slavery. Thanks, brothers. Very kind of you. Going back to dad, saying, Dad, a wild animal ate him. And at the end of his life, Joseph is not seeking revenge. He's not seeking to pay them back. But he sees everything as operating according to God's sovereign plan. You meant it for evil. You intended to do harm against me. But I see the big picture by God's grace, Joseph says, and I see that God was at work to use it for good. It doesn't mean all of our suffering is going to lead us to grow in power and prominence and prosperity like Joseph did, but it is always for our good as defined by God. Romans 8, 28, 29, we know this passage well. We know that for those who love God, all things, good and bad, work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. So this promise is not to all of humanity, but it's only to those who are called according to His purpose, His children. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And the verse 30 goes on to say, it's not on the screen, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he, uh, whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Everything evil in your past, done by you or against you, God has and can take it and use it ultimately for your good and his glory. You don't have to stay in that place, that mess of life. You've made sinful choices. You've suffered at the hands of others. You've been hurt. You've been abused. Whatever it is, sin, suffering, Satan, sorrow, doesn't have to win. And as a child of your Father in heaven, it won't win. He's even going to take the most painful aspects of our lives and use it for our good through His sovereign, powerful work so that in the end, we will be able to say, the enemy tried to destroy me. I tried to destroy myself. Those around me tried to destroy me, but they don't win. 
God is one. And I see his goodness even through the pain and through the hurt. So we don't live as victims, but we live victoriously. People who have suffered, who have brought suffering on ourselves, but that's not what defines us. We're defined as victors in Christ, who even through the junk of life, God is at work. I'm in a cohort of other pastors studying spiritual renewal in our lives as individuals and as a church. And this past Monday, the guy in charge, he told us that the first truth you have to believe in spiritual soul work is that you are safe. You are safe. God is sovereign over your story. Over what has been written, over what is being written, and over what will be written. You're safe to struggle. You're safe to figure it out. He's not going to be done with you. He's not going to wipe his hands of you. He's not going to give up on you. You're safe because he's in charge and we're not. Totally changes how we see our suffering. I'm not passive and I'm not paralyzed, but I'm trusting dad to filter everything I face through his loving, gracious will. If he ordains that I face it and it's hard, it's okay. He hasn't left me, abandoned me, or forsaken me. He's working for my good. If he ordains that I face it and it's easy and blissful, that's also a gift of his grace. So enjoy it. Don't, don't always be looking for the next storm. This is a good season. Enjoy the season that you're in, whether it be good. Find joy even when it's hard because he's at work. Uh, secondly, decisions. So that's suffering. Decisions. How do these biblical truths and tension affect our decision-making? Who should I marry? What college and career should I pursue? What house should I buy? Should I open a business in Monroe? Should I sell my house and buy this house? Should I plant a church? Should I move to Oak Cliff and help plant a church? Should I go spend the summer in Scotland? Should I spend a year in Tijuana? Should I move to Germany and help Todd and Tara? What is God's will for my life in all of these decisions? Well, I'll give $100 to anyone who can turn to chapter and verse that answers those questions right now. Ready? Go. Wouldn't that be great? Well, we know it's not in the Scriptures, right? We know it's not in there. And so we don't know the mind of God on these matters. We don't know the will of God in these matters. But we do know the mind and will of God on many other aspects of, of life. We do know the mind and will of God on many, many things. The fact that He desires that we would not perish but have life that we will be adopted into his family and be his dearly loved sons and daughters, that he desires that we would choose what is good and right and holy and pleasing and never what is sinful. If you're making a decision and one way is sinful and one way is not, that's an easy choice. I can tell you what God's will is in that. That he's working through his spirit to make us alive, to produce spiritual fruit like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That he's making us more and more like his son Jesus, conforming us to his image so that a renewed, redeemed image of God, the attributes of God, show up in our life. So which choice helps more of that show up in your life? That he desires we be engaged in his word so that our minds will be renewed continually by the doctrine of the word, by the washing of the water of the word, not simply conforming to the world or conforming to our flesh. He wants and desires this intimate, dependent life of prayer and communication with us. He has purposed that we would be in community with his people, called the church. On and on you can go through the scriptures 
showing clearly what God desires for us, what God wills for us, his children, in all of these aspects of life that, that really make up 85, 90% of life. And so if we make most of our life about doing the things we know to do, then we learn the voice of God, we grow in intimacy with God and his people, and they help us, he helps us through them, give us wisdom to think through these decisions, and then we make a choice. Make a choice. Not passively, like, well, you know, I don't know. Whatever's going to be is going to be. Not paralyzed, like, oh gosh, I'm going to throw the universe out of kilter. If I, if I do this wrong, if I make the wrong choice. Not, not like that, but in prayerful hope, in faith, in trust in your Father in heaven that He is at work. We do what is in accordance with what we know about the character and nature of our Father in heaven, and then we just make a choice and we trust Him. It's a life of freedom He's called us to, not a life of bondage. Like what good earthly father gives their child a life plan that if they don't walk out that life plan, the wrath of dad is coming at them? Would we look at any father on earth and say, that's a good dad, man. He's got everything planned out for his kids. We would say, that's abusive. Go read the story of Tiger Woods and his dad. Tiger Woods accomplished amazing things. Tiger Woods is very broken. A lot of that coming out of his relationship with his father, who was just like that. That's not a good earthly father. A good earthly father says, here's what's most important. Everything else is important but not as important. So be free. College, no college. This career, that career. This person or that person. This place to live or that place to live. Be free. I'm still your dad. I'm still going to love you. I'm still going to be there for you. I don't have exactly, like, do we want to raise kids who have to live out their life exactly the way we think they should live out their life, who are completely dependent on us to make all these decisions, right? Like our, our, our four or five, six-year-old comes to us and asks if they can play a game a little while until supper time. We think, okay, that's good. They're, they're learning how to, to, to live under our authority within the home. They're learning safe boundaries, and, and we, we, we do those things. But if our 20-year-old college son calls and asks if he can go play ultimate Frisbee for a little bit longer before supper time, why are you calling and asking me that? Make a decision for yourself and do it out of faith and trust in who your father is. You're not going to mess up God's sovereignty. Don't be afraid. Align your mind and heart with God and his people and his word and make a decision. Delight yourself in God, Psalms 37, 4 tells us, and he will give you the desires to make decisions and trust that he's working it all out. Lastly, how does attention and reality help us view the future in a way that leads to prayerful hope and not being passive or paralyzed? It's because God is sovereign and at work and is the ultimate determiner that energizes our hope, that energizes our work, that energizes our prayers. We have thousands of years of testimony of how God works and causes miraculous things to happen. We have the testimony of innumerable believers in the past and even today who can say, is anything too hard for the Lord? We still see miracles happen. We still see God intervene and change lives. We don't know what He will do, but we know Him. And we have confidence that as He's worked in the past, according to His character and nature, will be who he will work, how He works now in accordance to His character and nature, and how He will work for all time in accordance to His character and nature. Because in those ways, He does not change. 
He loves to show grace and mercy to repentant people. Then, now, and forever. And he acts toward us in wisdom, love, mercy, and grace. And so we pray like crazy. God, this is what I want. But ultimately, it's not my will, but your will be done. And that's a good thing. That his will will be done and not our will. So the sin that you and I still struggle to overcome, will I forever be unable to resist the temptation? Will this sin mark my life forever? It won't. It won't. He's working in you to give you His sufficient grace and strength to say no and to endure you until you are free from the presence of sin. And even sometimes He gives us victory over individual sins so they're not as heavy or as hard as they are right now. The fear and anxiety that overwhelms my mind, how do I see past that? Jesus is with you. Jesus is at work. He's not going to give up on you. You, he who began a good work in you, will complete it. He's going to give you more of himself so that you have more of his peace. And as you pray and as you interact with his people in the word, he's going to help you to see things as he sees them. And he's never worried. He's never anxious. He's never afraid. And as we come into his presence, we get more of him. We get more of that peace and confidence. The person that you love who continues to destroy their life through sinful choices, Jesus is with you and at work in their life too because he put you in their life. He's not giving up on them because you're still in their life. And as you love them and serve them and share the gospel with them and demonstrate God's love for them, he is at work in their life. It might not be until their final breath they call out, in repentance and faith in Jesus. But it is far better to gain eternity in that final breath than to never gain it at all. You are in their life. You are at work. Keep believing and trusting that God is working. Don't, don't resign yourself to apathy because He's not doing what you want when you want it right now. Have hope for the future. Have hope for their life. Impatience. If any of you are afflicted with impatience, as I am, nothing ever happens as fast as I want it to happen. Understanding the sovereignty of God helps me to see everything's happening right on time according to His perfect will. Again, this doesn't lead to passivity. This doesn't lead to paralysis. This leads to hope, prayerful hope, patience with other people, patience with God. You don't want to walk in the emergency room and your emergency room doctor who's going to take care of your kid, they're like, oh, well, you're right on time. Let's mosey on back here and take our time taking care of your kid. There is a, there is a sense and there is a time and a place for urgency. There's a time and a place to act and do. But it's all within this understanding of God at work. God is always at work, church. Our call isn't to make sure he works things out according to our will or to live in fear and anxiety or anger or despair because he hasn't turned things out the way we wanted. Our call is to trust him now and always. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he, he will make straight your paths. That's our call. Our call is to be God. Our call is to trust in God. Trust Him with everything. 
as the worship team comes back up, I'd like you just to take a few moments in silence and ask the Spirit what truth does He want you to see and believe and apply today. And maybe today for someone, this is the day of their salvation. And today the Spirit is calling you to turn from your sins and trust in Jesus for salvation and life. Maybe for others, it's comforting God's sovereignty that needs to settle your paralyzed heart. Maybe for some, it's a call to quit being passive and get busy serving the Lord with gladness. Just take a moment and listen to how the Spirit may speak.